Hi folks, hope all is well. This is Jim Carroll welcoming you to the latest Bantercast, a weekly podcast from the team behind the Banter series of talks and events. At Banter, we put on events in spaces and venues of all shapes and sizes at venues and festivals up and down the country where a range of interesting people come along to tell stories, talk about their lives and discuss various topics and themes. We record what happens in the room and then we podcast the results. On Easter Monday last, we took part in the nationwide Crinan Nikoska event with a series of banters in Dublin Castle in association with RTE. In this one, we talked to the one and only Faulkner O'Callag, one of the few no-nonsense straight-shooting managers in the music game who still has loads to say and do. There's lots to dig into here, from his days writing about music for the evening press, to managing acts like Clonard, the Boomtown Rats, Bananarama, the Botley Band, Don Lunny, Morrissey for seven eventful weeks, Dread Broadcasting Corporation, and currently Hair Squeeze. <laughs> Hi folks, hope you're all well. Welcome along to the final banter at Crinu session. Uh, thank you all very much. I see some people in the audience who were here before, so it's good to know you're back for more. Um, this is the final, final session, and it's a one-on-one interview with this gentleman here. His name is Faulkner O'Callagh, and he is a music manager. He's someone who has managed many, many acts over the years. He's someone who's kind of like, I suppose, the acts he's managed are kind of endemic in Irish music, Irish culture. You've the likes of kind of Clonet, the Botty Band, Boomtown Rats, Banana Ram were Irish, they were Irish. Uh, <laughs> many, many more, Sinead O'Connor, many, many more. So it's a great pleasure for me to welcome Faulkner O'Callagh to the stage here at Panther. Give you a round of applause. Faulkner, let's start at the very, very start. You know, I mean, the first, the first sort of biographical note I have on you is writing about music in the evening press. What were you doing before that? Uh, um, I was doing probably what an awful lot of people do at a relatively young age in their lives, trying to figure out what I wanted to do and not having a clue. Not particularly knowing. The one ambition I had was to get out of Dublin. So, how, by whatever means, by, by whatever means necessary. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't even as conscious of that as that. Right. So I, I was in, I'll tell you what happened. I was in, in went to London for three months um, tried to survive by doing various nefarious different things and got the first time my father ever wrote to me was when I was in London. And he wrote to me and he said, do you want to come home? If you want to come home, I'll pay for your plane ticket and there's a course in journal. He was the principal in the, in the college in Rathmines. And he said that there was a course in journalism starting in that college and would I be interested in doing it? So, as a means of getting the ticket to come home, I said, yes, I would. That course lasted for a year, and at the end of the year, I got offered a job in the, what was then the Irish press and in the Irish Times. And somebody said to me that um, the Irish press was far superior in terms of training a person as a reporter, first of all. And secondly, the Irish press was originally, I suppose, a Republican newspaper of sorts. And my family was a very Republican family, so uh, my natural inclination was to turn my back on the Irish Times. Sorry. No no offence taken. (laughs) And gravitate towards the Irish press, albeit it was a de Valera set-up. 
So that's how I ended up in the Irish press. Right. I'm curious. You said there, like, mean a Republican background, you know. So, like, I mean, your 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 family, your father's side, your father's side Dublin, your mother's side in Kerry. No. Right. Um, <laughs> my father's side, my grandfather's from Valencia Island, and he was one of the founding members of Sinn Féin. He was a president of Conrad na Gaelge. He was in a, a TD in the first Dáil and the second Dáil. Um, he was the last Cahirlock in the first Dáil and he was the Minister for Education, I think, the first Minister for Education. He was very hand-in-hand um, -hand with the likes of Cahill Brewer. Even though he didn't fight himself, my mother used to say he was a coward. Um, he claimed he had shingles um, around Easter time in 1916. She just said he was a coward. She didn't like him. And, um, but that was the background I came from. So, and he ended up being anti-treaty, rejected the treaty, rejected any state pension, refused to recognize the 26 counties, um, rejected any kind of, anything to do with this false uh, statelet that had been set up and that, as far as he was concerned, it was a betrayal. And accepting partition was a betrayal. So that is the kind of Republican philosophy to which I would subscribe, yeah. basically. Right, so like I me, mean, you arrive in, into the evening press, you're coming out of the College of Commerce and Red Minds, you've got that, you've got the course done there, you've got a bit of kind of like, I suppose, they, learned, they taught you how to use typewriter, they taught you a bit of shorthand. They taught us shorthand yeah. typing. So you're, yeah. you're, inside, you're inside in down Burkey, you know, and like you've picked, you picked the press over the times because it, like, it's good training and also that Republican background. This is the early 70s, right? Yeah. 70s. yeah. So what, 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 is, what, was the, what was the Irish press like that back then? What was, what was it like walking into a newsroom at, at, as a callow youth and looking around? Um, it was in lots of ways, um, well, I was a callow, long-haired youth, so that was kind of uh, immediately, my son over there is laughing at the idea, um, that immediately created an impression that wasn't necessarily accurate about me anyway. You know, I was perfectly, we devoured newspapers at home, so I came again from that background, so I was perfectly excited and enthusiastic to be in the newspaper world, if you like, albeit some kind of slightly sideshow version of it. Um, but the people that were there, like the, there was a very big man called Sean Crine, who was the, uh, the crime correspondent, and he kind of, I wouldn't say he took me under his wing, but he, despite his, uh, his appearance, and despite, to him, my appearance, we kind of formed some kind of a connection, you know. So there were various things like that that happened that, that, that kind of defied the preconceptions, you know. Right. Um, but it was still a strange place to be, and I had imagined that, you know, the newspaper world was, uh, especially at that time and before that, that it was open and accessible to people. If you walked in off the street and you said, look, my landlord is doing this or he's threatening to kick me out of the house and I have three kids and everything that somebody would go, okay, and that would be a story, you know. But actually, over a period of time, whoever was the youngest in the newsroom on a particular day, if somebody came into the front office downstairs with a story or a complaint, 
they'd look around, the news desk would look around and say, Fakna, go downstairs, there's some nutter downstairs, go down and get rid of him, you know. So, over in a very sh short space of time, I realized that my kind of romanticized impression of newspapers was not the reality, mm. you know. And that kind of, I saw, I mean, this sounds like kind of rubbish, really, and it is to a large extent, but I saw newspapers as being some kind of a, uh, th that they would vocalize the concerns of the people, you know, it was a way that I interpreted newspapers for my, in my naivety. And of course, they, in those days and even more nowadays, uh, uh, their agenda is very much to do with business and big business and banks and industry and commerce and, you know, the status quo and ensuring that nothing happens that's going to threaten anything, you know. Mm. So obviously, like me, if you're, you, your man Tom, he's got you under his wing, you know, you've been sent down to deal with people coming in, so you're a general reporter. At what stage do you begin reviewing music then? Um, there was a guy whom you will know of, definitely, and some people will know of him, a guy called Ken Stewart, who used to do radio programs on Radio Airden, as it was then. And Ken Stewart had a weekly column of some sort in the evening press, to say I was in the Irish press, most of the time I was in the evening press, and it was actually more interesting and more exciting because it was more immediate. And there were, I think, three different, if not four different deadlines during the day for the country edition and then the three city editions. So at, at 25 past one with the deadline at 1.30, something could happen. And there'd be just this mad frenzy of 10 minutes, you know, of, of action while the story was put together and and then everybody would relax, you know. Yeah. Anyway, Ken Stewart was doing this weekly music column. The features editor it was a man called Sean McCann. I'm amazed that I can remember any of this. Um, and he came down to me one day, I don't know why, maybe because of my long hair or something, and said, um, I'm thinking about syndicating some material from this magazine in America called Rolling Stone. What do you think? And I kind of thought, well, yeah, that's okay, but it'd be all about American things or maybe some English, British things, but mostly international things, and there'd be no Irish content to it. And I said, well, why would you, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you have somebody here that could write about these things, review records, etc., etc., etc. So anybody, he said, and who could do that? And I said, give me a shot at it. So I ended up with a half a page, approximately a half a page each week in the evening press, where I wrote about things that nobody, I think nobody else in the building had a clue what I was talking about, which obviously gave me a great sense of freedom, so I could write anything I wanted. Um, were, you, were you a big music fan at that stage? Oh, yeah, huge, yeah. Huge. What, and what sort of stuff would, was turning you on? Like, I mean, what, what, can you remember your first immersion? It would turn me on. <laughs> not, not Stokes in the building, you know? <laughs> um, all sorts of stuff from Joseph O'Haney to, um, I don't know, rebel songs to, um, I mean, this is a dreadful cliche, but the first piece of music that wasn't Irish, that kind of sent some kind of shiver up my spine was when I heard Heartbreak Hotel. The first time I heard that, it kind of, it made me, it just kind of threw me because it sounded so like, it was like, what's this, you know? 
um, Fats Domino, that, that kind of thing, and then on into the 60s, whatever happened in the 60s happened, um, into glam rock and Planksty, yeah. you know, yeah. anything and everything, reggae music. I remember traveling over to Manchester to see the Whalers the first time they came to England. Um, so then all, all this kind of like musical likes, all, these, all, all this kind of like being this filter fed into this half page in Deeping Press. Yes, it did really. And, and it's a funny thing. I mean, nobody, I don't mean nobody like in relation to me, but music didn't get written about in newspapers those days. What happened was that there, would, there were people, there was somebody in the Evening Herald, there was somebody, there were particular days in these evening newspapers, especially, specifically, where a series of press releases would be, would be gathered together and they would basically be transcribed word for word into the newspaper with some photographs. So, uh, what's your man Barry McGuigan's father, Pat McGuigan? Mm -hmm. You'd see a story about Pat McGuigan's latest single, number three in Guam, you know. And that would be the kind of, that was the extent of writing about music. There was no writing, it was just print the press release, or such and such, the Indians were going to play whatever, you know. Um, so the idea of story, music in the newspaper was a kind of a relatively new thing, first of all. I can remember as a, like, as a newspaper, there were never stories about music until the first one I was aware of, not the first one, but the first one I was involved in, that I was therefore aware of, was when McCartney did a song called Give Ireland Back to the Irish. And the news editor, or the editor, Sean Ward, came over to me and said, I know what this is about. And that was it. And then it was printed, the story was printed on the front page of the evening press, and I was all happy with myself and everything, <laughs> you know. Um, but a weekly music column, I could write about anything. I've, I've lost my train of thought. Yeah, no, no, it, it's interesting, because it's like, you know, you, I remember you talked to me before about, like, you know, this, you, you, there, there, you get albums into review, or more importantly, you go to That's gigs right. as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, it's kind of curious, because, I mean, you're on this, you're on this kind of, like, you're on a kind of, like, a fast track in many ways. You're in the evening press. You're looking around you. You see what the future is. You're kind of going, like... I'm, I didn't I'm, see the future. Ah, Sorry. you didn't. Like, you, no. you, 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 we can kind of surmise to, to take, take the interview. You, you can kind of go, okay, this is where things are going. But then you went into music management. I did. What, like, t tell us a little bit about that. Tell, tell us a bit, like, how, how you... Like, I've got, I've got the, I've got the Boonter Matt story later on, but that's, that's the come. The earlier stories, like, I mean, the body band, the planet. Um, planet... Was Clannad the first ones? Clannad were the first ones, yeah. And that happened because um, I had a particular and intense dislike of horse lips. Um, and horse lips were playing in the National Stadium, which was also probably the only venue in Dublin at the time, a boxing arena. Um, but anyway, uh, I decided I was going to go and review, uh, unleash my demons on horse lips in a review. And... Um, the opening act on the bill was this incredibly kind of uh, fragile, um, but yet deeply powerful kind of music. Sorry, I'm sounding like somebody else. Um, from Donegal, performed by these something. They were almost children. They were in their teens, but they, it looked like they were, and they were kind of, seemed like they were shivering in fear and so on and so forth. Beautiful voices, all five of them as it was at the time, the voices coming together, pure family business, you know, but at the same time, 
primal and everything that, you know, you could just hear those five voices together and understand Ireland in 10 seconds kind of thing, you know. Um, so obviously, even the way I'm talking about it now, it was clear that I was completely captivated um, and wrote words, a hope to that effect in the review the next day. Um, and they got in touch with me and said that they were making an album, which was the, at that point their second album, um, for Gaelin. And would I write the sleeve notes for it or something? So they invited me down to Donegal to Gwydor, or to Dor Gwydor. And um, I kind of hung out with them for a while. And one thing kind of led to another. And then they said, oh, would you manage us? And, and for me, it coincided with a kind of this growing awareness that the newspaper world was definitely not for me. Um, so... Um, one thing led to another. Like, uh, like I'm, I'm curious about that. I mean, like, when you say one thing led to another in terms of, like, them asking you to manage them, manage you, manage clients... What was that? I mean, like, I mean, like you're, you're arriving up there. I'm, I'm taking them kind of like me as opposed to like Bruce Springsteen and John Landau. And John Landau wrote this <laughs> review they called Springsteen. Uh, I've seen the future of rock and roll, and it's Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> they, Springsteen rings him up, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Then one thing led to another, and he ended up managing him. Hmm. In the case of Clonard, like, what was it? I mean, like, was it the case that you knew people? Was it the case? No, I knew nobody. Well, I mean, I, uh, no. No, I didn't know anybody. I mean, I knew a couple of blokes in, in record labels in Dublin that I'd go in and ask for some record that they would look at me as if I had three heads and say, but uh, why would I give you that record to review? Nobody's interested in it. And I'd go, well, maybe in my arrogance and egotistical outlook on myself would say, well, maybe if I reviewed it, maybe 10 people might be interested in it, you know. Mm. And then they'd say, well, no, because if we have to, we'd have to import it and we'd have to import 25 copies, so there's no point in doing that. And you'd just feel like punching the wall, like how is okay, anything... Okay, so it wasn't, your, it wasn't you your charm when it comes to record labels that Atlanta saw? I beg your pardon? It wasn't your charm when it comes to record labels that Atlanta were interested in? Well... I don't know. No, Planet, I don't know how they became interested in me. I presume they seemed to think I was a reasonable bloke or something. I thought they were reasonable people. I was captivated by their music and by the way they approached it. And I can remember them giving, giving I can remember giving a copy of Bitches Brew um, to Kieran O'Brien on because he was talking about jazz or something like that, and I, somehow I had a copy of Bitches Brew, and I gave that to him. Maybe that was the clincher. Okay, right, okay. I don't know. Right, okay, curious. Then. One so thing led to another is a really nice way of kind of acknowledging that I have no idea whatsoever. Perfect, that's, that's best, best, perfect, perfect. So, so after one thing led to another, leads to another, then you're managing Claude. They're about to record a second album for Gail Yeah. Um, did, like, when, did, did you tell, get in touch with Gail and say you're now looking after them, or how did that roll, and what happened next? Listen, you're talking about, sorry, if I was a proper GAA fan, which I am, I'd say, look. Yeah, look it, look it. Look it. Um, I haven't a clue. I never had a clue then, and I really, and I'm not being kind of, this is not a kind of, some kind of false kind of position. I don't really have a clue now either. Um, the more you learn, yeah. the less you know in reality, you know. Um, it opens so many, learning something new opens so many other doors to places that you don't know about, that if you're any way kind of forward looking, you're looking at what you don't know rather than, rather than what you know. So 
Did I tell Gay Lynn that I was their manager? I, no, it was just this thing just happened. Yeah, okay. you know. So and then they ended up going, they were going on tour in Germany and I went with them. And the reason I said yes to it was because I thought that my, all my dreams had come true. I'd be able to listen to this group for the rest of my life, you know. Yeah. How long that was literally it. How long did you manage to plan for? I don't know, three years or something. Three years, okay. So at that stage, then, did you, t did you take up with a body band during that time? Or yes, yeah, very, very, uh, I have to acknowledge, it was a very brief liaison um, that came, it didn't come crashing to a halt, but it would sound nice if I said that. So um, coming back from a gig somewhere, I knew Donal from Planksty days um, and admired him, obviously, and had sat again kind of, taken over by the music of Planksty when they'd play in the Carlton Cinema in O'Connell Street or something, you know. I also, at that time, sorry to oh, rewind fine. for a second, met Nicky Ryan, who was doing the sound for Planksty. And Planksty, you know, they had some rowdly-dowdly tunes as well, and the crowd would start going like this. And instead of pushing the... He used to do the front-of-house sound. Instead of making it louder, which is kind of to drown out the sound of the crowd clapping, or maybe I'm just stupid. Um, he would pull the sound down till it was, you could barely hear them. So everybody would be, and then the clapping had sort of stopped, and then he'd bring it back up again, you know. And amongst other things, this indicated some kind of genius to me. <laughs> anyway, when I began working with Planet, I asked Nikki to come, because of the voices and the, yeah. that whole thing, and the, the kind of space in it and everything, needed to be captured. I asked Nicky, would he be interested in coming and doing the sound? So he was. Um, and then once I disappeared, he took over managing them. And once he took over managing them, he ended up ultimately with Enya Niverain on. So yeah. um, but that's a whole other avenue. Um, I don't know. The Boomtown Rats came about because. I know, just, let's stick with the body band for a second. Sorry. So the body, body band. So you knew Donald from Planksty, you know, and like I mean, they were a serious motherfuckers, you know. They oh, were. I mean, I remember going to the first time I saw the body band, which is probably ages after everybody else had seen them. But what they were opening or supporting they, for again in the National Stadium, some of the most uh, influential moments of my life in the National. It's Stadium. It's a great venue. It is a great venue. Yeah. Um, they were opening for Steel Eye Span, who were this kind of... Anyway, they were what they were. And then um, the body band, like, if the roof took off at the National Stadium that night, I'm, I would be firmly convinced that that was the absolute truth. They tore into the place like nobody's business. Tony McMahon, the yeah. accordionist, was in the body band at That's that stage. Yeah. Probably the most... I don't know, I wrote about it, I don't mean I wrote about it, but as it happened, I was reviewing the thing, and, you know, I mean, I, I, it was indescribable, it was, the, it was this, you see, Irish music was a beautiful thing, but it was also regarded as, with, uh, most especially in Dublin, but even by the establishment, for want of a better word, as... It was sneered upon. It was regarded as backward. We, we, were, we, had, we had come through this fabulous, amazing 60s where everybody got electricity around the country and we were becoming an industrialized community and we looked forward, we didn't look back. We were rejecting our heritage, our past, even though, even though the monumental changes were only 50 years prior, you know. 
we were in the process of rejecting all that. So Irish music was had the equivalent kind of uh, uh, thing attached to it as like redneck music, basically. Irish language, Irish music, anything that was redolent of the past was to be rejected and moved on from because now we're young and we're fresh and we're new and we're going to be European and all that kind of stuff. So hearing the likes of the Bothy Band and Planksty, because they put it, they didn't, the music wasn't, still had its uh, purity, what didn't become diluted. It wasn't my beef with Thorslips was that it was like gimmicky, you know, it was just like throw drums and bass into the thing and play a few jigs and reels and you're something special, you're not. Um, these, the people in Planksty and the Bothy Band had a, had a reverence for the people who came before them, from the people from whom they learned the tunes. They knew what the path was. They knew that they were just carrying this stuff forward to another period of time, you know. Um, so, and yet at the same time, they looked like me. They looked like everybody, all the young people that I knew. So it, there was a natural attraction to it. And on top of that, they pr created and produced this just either like extremely fragile, again, delicate, heartbreaking kind of melancholy mm. in some things, or this kind of, uh, you know, take no prisoners, couldn't care less, see that wall down there, we're going through it, you know. Yeah. Sound, concrete sound of traditional Irish music that nobody had come up with before, you mm. know. So it, it, it was beyond the music. It in the same way as music in the 60s represented great social change and so on, Planksty and the Bathy Band represented that to me and to lots of other young yeah. Irish people at the time. We rediscovered... Um, the youth, a lot of the youth of the country rediscovered what it meant to be Irish at yeah. that time through music. I, th I thought it was very interesting. I mean, like, you know, obviously Planksy reformed and, and did a dog the second time around and, and, and like, you know, they, like, introduced their music to people who had never seen them. You know, in the case of the Bothy Band, after Michal Donald died, there was a tribute gig to him uh, that which the, the yeah. most original members of Barry Man played in Vicar Street. You know, do you think, you know, that, that would we ever see a kind of a Bothy Band style reunion along the Planksy lines? No, I doubt it very much. Mm. No chance? I wouldn't, from, I mean, I don't know. My, my kind of uh, affair with them, if you like, was very short-lived. Um, but I'm, I am aware of the fact that over multiple years that business arrangements that were made either on their behalf or that even maybe they made themselves some of the time did not work out best for them, let's mm. put it like that. So they, you know, there's been people selling Bothy Band records all over the world and not a cent, not a cent has gone into their pockets. Okay. Not okay. one cent, either publishing or, or recording, not that there's nowadays recording income, but in their case, in their case, they could reform and, and um, probably do an explosive tour that would be probably financially rewarding to them. But on that basis, 
there'd be other people m making money out of pressing up records yeah. and CDs yeah. and uh, making their material available because none of the rights are, uh, the band has none of the rights. Okay. Next adventure begins like this. It's a, a quote from uh, Is That It by Bob Geldof. <laughs> I would accompany Faulkner Kelly, a journalist friend of mine, to whatever pop events are happening in Dublin and write about them. One of these occasions, a Gary Glitter press conference, Faulkner and I <laughs> had stolen the microphone. This, that was what I used in rehearsals, hung from a rafter in the shack, plugged into the bass guitar amplifier Pat used. Faulkner and I were now banned from any further press conferences. Faulkner was a very tall, thin man. He's very handsome and intelligent. He is one of the biggest collectors of records I've ever seen, a brilliant taste in music. One afternoon, his flat had a slip. Some friends of mine in their band, I was wondering if you have anything we should listen to. I was too embarrassed to admit I myself happened to be in the same band. Faulkner revealed a treasure trove to me. He played me Dr. Feelgood. This is the very thing I wanted to do. Brilliant new rhythm and blues, wonderful, wonderful lyrics. He played me Bob Marley and Max Romeo and Burning Spear. I'd heard some reggae before in Canada, but nothing like this. I had, I, this it was also great dance music. So that's the beginning of your affair with Bob Geldof, right? Kind of. Like, did, like, you, like, We've talked before about Geldof, and like we talked about like Geldof's star quality. <coughs> like, what attracted you to him in the first place? <laughs> His big dick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry. Um, what attracted me to him in the first place? His, uh, forgive the stealing of your word, his banter, I suppose. Um, I don't know what attracted me to him. I mean, it, it's, 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 a lot of the time it's, it's, uh, it's not you, it's me. Uh, a lot of the time it's what you're, something that you feel, you don't even feel, but uh, you're not even conscious of these things. But there's some on reflection, there's some absence of something in your life, or there's some spark that's missing, or you're looking for some excitement, or there's nothing conscious about it. I, I can't remember. I mean, he was just some bloke, and I knew he was attractive in the sense that when he would walk into a and I could feel it from him as well, if he'd walk into a room, you know, he had, a, he had no money, he didn't have anything, but he could walk into a room and, and uh, people would somehow gravitate towards him, you know. So I suppose it's the much abused word of charisma or whatever, mm. presence, whatever you want to call it. And then he had the kind of the playfulness with words and a certain capacity to kind of slightly, slightly sneeringly or satirically kind of take the piss out of somebody, you know, that kind of thing that, mm. you know, it... Could it, he sing? It can be attractive. Could he sing? No, no. But he was driven, he was driven. He, I can remember him, you know, listening to the poor bloke. He used to put himself listening to Tony Blackburn doing the whatever the breakfast show was on Radio 1 so he could hear what kind of pop tunes were, you know. Um, now, that's, that's probably a gross exaggeration in the great scheme of things, but I know he did that. Yeah. Um, so he was very driven. He was years later, not years later, only a, a couple of years and a half later or something, I had occasion over a period of many six months to deal with Richard Branson. And I always thought the two of them were very similar. Uh, and I don't mean that this is, can be in a disparaging tone, uh, word, I suppose, or a negative word. They're like really um, personally attractive salespeople. You know, they paint a picture about themselves, first of all, and then about whatever it is that they're selling. 
yeah. be it Virgin Airlines or whatever, and it all looks fabulous and they speak well and they express it well and they, you know, they're like storytellers. Yeah. So, okay. So th Whether so there's substance there or not is another matter, you know. But, like, I mean, the, the rats had a good run. They, they, like, they know, did they, have they, a good they, run, yeah. And, like, you know, was, was, that, I suppose, was that your first introduction to, like, commercial rock and pop record companies, how they deal, and dealing with, a, with an act who've kind of got that kind of appeal, who were on top of the pops, who were kind of like selling large amounts of records? Um, I suppose in principle it was, but in practice, Everything was reactive. We were just reacting, you know, and the label was as well. Um, excuse me. You just reacted to what was going on. You, there was a, there was, the record came out, I think they used to release them on a Friday or something. And by Monday, let's say Monday morning, you'd know whether it was, you'd have a pretty good idea whether it was going to be a hit. Um, you would hear on the next Monday, when it had charted, you would hear whether it was going to be on top of the pops. If it was on top of the pops, well, then suddenly the figures it would multiply, the orders would come in. You'd, you'd see orders of 60, 70, 80,000 records a day, you know. You just know. Um, so I suppose uh, Geldof had the capacity to draw attention to himself and therefore to the group. Um, there was a certain amount of energy that was about the place at the time. I think the timing was really good because the, the, the real punk groups, if you like, real punk is the wrong way of putting it, but the, the earlier groups like the Pistols, the Flash, the Jam, the Susie, particularly Susie had a terrible struggle getting a record deal. You know, people wouldn't touch her. Um, so the rats came along when a lot of the groundwork had been laid, a lot of yeah. the kind of so what people regarded as excess had been, had been expressed, you know, the madness of it and everything. So this kind of very energetic, very in some ways attractive, in some ways kind of frightening thing appeared. It was the, the packaging was very good, you know, albeit completely uh, subconscious in lots of ways. Mm. I'm very conscious of the time, and I'm very conscious of the fact that we, we've kind oh of... My, we, we, we've just rambling endlessly. No, 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 we just, we just, like, you know, there's certain things going on. One instant from the kind of the rat's history that I want to touch on, because there was recently a, a kind of a, a, a scholarly documentary on RT about it, was the Leakslip Castle gig. Yes. And, like, I mean, that was a situation where he wants to do an outdoor show at Leakslip Castle, and uh, you ended up in court. Uh, you no, know, we wanted to do the show in Leopardstown. Leopardstown, right. That's right. And... Sorry, go on, I no, just, just, like, no, like, sorry, go talk, talk about that. <laughs> like, I mean, Gellif side in 1979, you decide in 1979, he goes to a homecoming, a big homecoming show. He got one off the ground in Belfast, but then the one in 1980 in, in Lepre like you say, there was problems. Um, yeah, I don't know what the problems were, but somebody somewhere decided that it wasn't going to happen. Everything was supposed to be going ahead. I think it was with Jim Aiken, who would, was the wonderful, absolutely beautiful kind of father of Peter Aiken, who was, uh, Jim Aiken was the promoter of the time, um, at a time when it didn't really pay an awful lot of money to be a promoter. Um, but he was a lovely man. And uh, we thought that Leopardstown would be a great place to do a gig, and it seemed everything was possible. And then all of a sudden, somebody somewhere, the police or somebody raised an objection, or the council or somebody, I didn't care. I couldn't care less. I really, it was of almost zero interest to me. It became some kind of a thing. Um, 
but I wasn't kind of gripped with, we're going to make this happen. I don't care. You know, yeah. we'll defy the authorities and everything. It, it, you don't want to gig, all right, we'll go back to London then. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, what happened was, or one of the things that happened, while I was traipsing in and out of court in a confused state, Geldof was out on the wall of Leopardstown Racecourse going, and we're going to fucking this, and we're fucking, and we're, nobody's going to fucking stop us, and everything. And then I remember him specifically, after that day, coming back to Bloom's Hotel, which is where we were all literally holed up, coming to the room that I was in and saying, we have to get the fuck out of here. Can't get this gig off. Don't, this gig can't happen. We have to get out of here, you know. But, and I said, but Bob, you've just stood on a wall going, we're not leaving until we, you know. And he said, ah, fuck that. Um, anyway, we ended up somehow or another, again, um, through kind of maybe a guy called Tony Boland. Oh, yeah. Um, who I think hooked us up with uh, your man Guinness out in Leakslip Castle. And uh, we ended up out there with um, security was provided by <laughs> a bunch of students from UCD who there was, a, there was a, a very small coterie of people in Dublin at the moment. I don't know. They did exist. There was one brief period where they existed, but I think their name existed far, far longer than they did in reality. They called themselves the Black Catholics. Oh, yeah. And they were, um, the impression they managed to create themselves about themselves, I think, once or twice, was that they were disruptive. Anyway, the black Catholics turned up at Leakslip, and the white students from UCD went running <laughs> for all four corners of the place. And the minute, I remember the minute the rats finished the last note, they ran off the back of the kind of hastily constructed stage into whatever van we had at the time, transit, going, let's get the fuck out of here and get to Dublin Airport. And that's what we did. Um, there was, a, I don't know, you see, when you're not in the place, you don't know what, if there has any repercussions or not. We just came in, supposedly to do a gig. The gig wasn't happening. We figured out a way to do another gig somewhere else. We did the gig and ran out of the place because we'd been here for two weeks and we'd been paying for hotel rooms and we had this and we had that and everybody was just fed up with the whole thing, you yeah. know. Um, whether it meant anything in the aftermath or not, I don't know. Right. How long did you manage your rats for? Uh, six years. Okay, so that next, your next kind of like, <coughs> your next charge is with what, Bananarama? Bananarama, yeah. Each of the things that I've kind of, if I put it politely, euphemistically, moved on from, I've moved on because... Um, in my great wisdom, I've become uh, bored as an unfair, but, but slightly disinterested, you know. So I became disinterested in the, the more and more kind of frantic and desperate efforts, particularly of, of uh, various people, to kind of keep the Boontown Rats successful or whatever that was. Yeah. And it just... There were, there were huge kind of stage things of X's and O's and all I could think of was Morn's Hotel and bottles and glasses flying, you know. Okay, so and it just seemed like a complete, a very long, which it was, um, but it wasn't, a, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a journey, sorry for using the word, it wasn't a kind of a, an adventure that was ending up where I would like to, it to have ended up, you know. Okay, it was on so some funny kind of a road. I met these girls from Bananarama. 
they were rehearsing, <laughs> if such a word it can be called, in the Pistols had a rehearsal studio in Denmark Street in London. And they were a little bit kind of, their look was kind of really good, really DIY and everything. And yeah. I just liked them and I liked their attitude and everything, so I managed them. They signed London Records, didn't they? They did, yeah. Was it Tracy Bennett? Uh, Roger Ames. Roger Ames, okay. And Tracy Bennett, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, like, you know, they, and they were successful. They, like, you they know, were successful, they, yeah. The first, first record they made was paid for and produced by Paul Cook, the drummer from the Pistols. All right, okay. First 12-inch. Okay, so then after that, so that's, that, we're now in the 1980s. So is it around that time then you, you encountered Tonton McCoot and Sinead O'Connor? No, I never encountered Tonton McCoot. Okay, so like, how did you come across Sinead O'Connor then? Uh, uh, well, this would, would have been some years later probably 1986, 80, 86, yeah, um, a few years later, moving rapidly on. Um, a person that I regarded at the time as a friend of mine and turned out to be a, an evil, conniving bastard, um, mentioned to me that there was this young 17-year-old or 18-year-old coming to London or had just arrived in London, had been signed to Ensign Records, who I knew from the days they had signed the Boomtown Rats, and she knew nobody in London, and would I give her a ring, or whatever you did in those days. And I said yes, and I rang her, and then, moving rapidly along, uh, she said, not immediately, but some weeks later, said, oh, there's a playback for my album in the studio tomorrow, I'd like you, would you like to come? I said, yeah, why not? Um, it was for the record company people. It was like the record was half mixed and the producer, Mick Glossop, was going to play it for them. So I sat in the back of the room beside her and they stood at the desk in the front kind of rocking out to the tunes and everything. And she was going, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. So the next day I went in and said, she hates it, she hates it, she hates it. And they said, what do you want to do? And I said, scrap it and give us... 60 grand and we'll go off and make, remake the record. So that's what happened and that was the first record which was called The Lion and the Cobra. Okay, right, okay. We, we, missed, out, we missed out on one, I'm just realizing that like, as, as we're kind of moving on, besides managing bands, you also ran a record label for a while. Uh, again, these kind of, this terminology is not necessarily reflective of what was actually happening. I was the titular head of Mother Records <laughs> <laughs> Explain what Mother Records was. Mother Records was a, an altruistic kind of uh, let's give something back label, apparently, that you two wanted to have, uh, which they set up. Um, again, this quote-unquote friend of mine at the time, who turned out to be an evil, conniving bastard, um, told me about this label, said they were looking for somebody to run the label, and would I be interested? Now, I hated you two, absolutely, possibly, not possibly, definitely more than I ever hated Horselips. Um, I really, really despised them. The first time they played in London, Paul McGuinness, who I vaguely knew, had got in touch with me and said, would you come and look at this group? Um, and I went, it was, may not have been the first time, but it was very early, in, in a place in Hammersmith, Broadway, where, the, where there's a bus depot now. How's the Odeon? Um, no, uh, yeah, where the, near where the Odeon was, but in upstairs pub. in a pub. And I remember, like, the, I can definitely remember the moment that my stomach turned was when I saw Bono going like this in the lights, or the kind of pulling something, threads of something out of the sky, and I, th I just, that was it for me. Um, that 
was just personal. It was nothing to do with anything else. Anyway, um, I was told that the, there was this position available to run their record label. I was flown over to Dublin. I sat down with Paul McGuinness. He explained to me that you go out, you find a group, a young group, you give them all the facilities that an act that would be signed long-term to a major would get, in other words, a producer and a proper studio. They make an EP or a single, and then if it would go through Island Records, because Mother was going through Island Records, but if Warners wanted to sign this band based on this single, no problem, no strings attached, right? So it seemed like, a, okay, it's a leg up for some young acts. So every month or every three months, I had to fly over to Dublin and sit down with these four blokes and listen while they talked about something that they'd found, the hothouse flowers, um, or something that they wanted to release. So Tuesday Blue was another one. Cactus World News was another one. And that was it, really. And then at some stage along this exciting musical adventure path, um, who do you call him? Niall Stokes, your man in Hot Press, rang me and said, we're doing the Hot Press yearbook. We'd like to do an interview with you because you're, you know, running Mother Records or whatever. And in my... I must, my ego must have needed a boost at the time or something, I said yes. And in the course of the interview, they told me, I explained about Mother Records and what a great idea it was and a lovely blah 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 And I said, the funny, I find it funny that I've ended up being involved in this because I fucking despise you two. Um, so I got fired. Okay. That was short version of that. Fair that, that, That's good. I mean, like, well, like, what acts were you bring? What acts did you want to sign to Motor Records? If you can't uh, remember, that's fine. But like, I'm just, I'm just curious because I mean, you mentioned bands like. There Cass was one from Scotland called The Painted Word that did, that they did put out. As, in fact, this wasn't the. I, I didn't actually. I did get fired for that by the band, but I had a, pre a prior disagreement with Paul McGuinness, who's I like. Um, because there was all this no strings attached, but when the painted word thing came about, and it was like I was ringing Paul and saying, okay, it's going to cost five grand to make this record or whatever in this studio and this so on and so forth. He said, and what about the publishing? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, we have to have the publishing. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, I mean, that's... And I said, but I thought there were no strings yeah, attached. Yeah. And he said, no, 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 no. And I said, okay, Paul, uh, here's the phone number for the painted word. You ring them and tell them because I'm not telling them. Uh, I did this on the basis, not that, no, no conditions. So he didn't ring them, and they made the record, and the record came out. But that was the kind of turning point. Right, okay. We talked there with Sinead O'Connor. Everything so that, was not what it appeared to be. That's often the case. Sinead O'Connor, right? So you, you, <coughs> you took the money from Enzyme, you went off and you recorded the first album, you know? Well, you, she recorded it with John Reynolds. I mixed it. You mixed it, okay. So like, then were you around for the second album? I was... Almost around for the second album. There was a three-year gap. She had a child by John um, called Jake. And so there was about a three-year gap. And in the course of that three-year gap, um, there was one day when there was uh, probably one of the first Pride um, gatherings in London. I think 1987 or something. Maybe the summer of 1987. 1988, probably. Um, and we went down to it, and then all these, all these people who were big, the gay community was a big fan, big fans of Sinead O'Connor, and they saw her, and they, oh, Sinead, Sinead, would you sing something? 
And she said, what will I sing? And I said, sing that song off the tape, the cassette that I gave you, that compilation mix that I did for you. And she said, what song? And I said, sing that song, Nothing Compares to You. Um, because I thought there, were, there was only a couple of thousand people there, but it was at a time when, when AIDS and HIV uh, was beginning. It, it was earlier in America, but it was really, really, there were all these horrible ads on television of kind of huge kind of buildings collapsing and doom and gloom and everything about AIDS and HIV. And the gay community was really being ostracized and outsided even more than they had been. Um, and I thought if she stood up and sang this song a cappella with total silence, that, it, that people would be blown away, which they were. Um, so that was the first time she sang the song. And then <coughs> I could say I had the idea, but that would be a complete lie. A friend of mine had the idea to get Nellie Hooper um, from Soul to Soul in to produce the record. So I met with Nellie, uh, who I kind of vaguely knew, and he said yes. We went in one day and he did, uh, he put down, laid down the drum track, which was brilliant, and the bass, and uh, um, somebody, a Japanese guy, whose name escapes me now, did the strings, the fake strings. Sinead did the, uh, attempted a vocal which didn't work. She used to work from 10 o'clock to 6 because of the baby. Sorry, I'm trying to make everything yeah. rapid. So the next day we arranged with Nelly, we'd be in at 10 o'clock in the morning, an hour or so to warm up and then she'll hammer the vocal. Um, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, phone calls to Nelly. Yeah, I'm, I'll be there in a minute, man. One o'clock, two o'clock. What's the problem? You know, I'll be, I'm on my way, etc. And I said, fuck you, Nelly. And that was that. So we took the tapes and went to another studio <coughs> got an engineer and she did the vocal, I don't mean under my guidance, but with me producing the vocal and then I mixed the track and then that was it. And then I played it to the record label and they were going, this now, nah, this isn't going to work, how could this work? Nobody's going to play this, there's no chance. Um, but I knew in my heart of hearts that it was a big hit and then about Four weeks later, I was in a meeting at the record company and the phone rang and it was Sinead looking for me and she said, you have to come now. And I said, what? She said, I'm in the down in the studio with John. I want you here. And I said, I'm in the middle of a meeting. And she said, I want you here. And I said, I'm in a meeting. And she said, if you don't come, you're fired. I said, ring your lawyer and tell him that. And that was that. Okay. Was there any sort of, I suppose, inclination beforehand that she was going to do something like that? No. I mean, the relationship that we had was kind of, it, it was kind of, uh, I won't say strange, but it was, she was a young, she was probably 19 or 20 by this, but still a very teenage kind of outlook, rebellious teenage kind of outlook. So I, I kind of always felt that at some stage she would, uh, for want of a better word, rebel against me yeah, as well, yeah, you know. Yeah. And I think this was just really, truthfully, in her own way, her stretching herself and saying, nobody's going to keep a hold on me and everything. Not that I 
couldn't right. care less what you did at that time. Okay, I, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very conscious of the fact that, like me, we need to get the, 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 the nice people in Dublin Castle want this room back, and I have a feeling that we're going to have a part two of this podcast at some stage. But like, I want to kind of move on to something else that you talked about in, in, to me in, in emails, and you never, you never went deeper than kind of saying it, than saying you, you spent seven eventful weeks managing Morrissey. <laughs> Tell us about this. I strolled around Holland Park with Morrissey, having the most lovely conversations about Edith Sitwell and this, that, and the other. Whom what I attracted Morrissey to you? <laughs> My vast uh, business acumen. No, I don't know. Somebody just put us together. He doesn't have managers. He has representatives. He may have a manager now. I don't know. But in those days, and it was post the Smiths, obviously. It was around the time of November spawned a monster, that song. And um, the one good thing, well, not the one good thing, but one good thing I did with, with uh, there's a photographer who's now incredibly well-known, Jürgen Teller. And Jürgen was a young guy, and I got him to do some photos of Sinead, and I also introduced him to Morrissey and got him to do, there were photographs needed. Um, it, everything was fine, and then about, like, literally seven weeks into it, he decided that he didn't like me anymore, which he had done to numerous other yeah. people beforehand. And then about nine months later, he sent me a fax, because this was in the days of fax machines, saying, Dear Fatty, um, can you get me on a stage? And I, res I replied, uh, kind of head-top business, as they say in, in the reggae world, or whatever, just off the top of my head, I replied, there, there used to be, by the way, there was a, just the reference, there was a, a Western film called the, I think it was called, I used to think it was the 410 to Yuma, but apparently it was called the 310 to Yuma. Anyway, when he wrote, dear, hey fatty, you know, can you get me on the stage? I said, yes, um, I can get you on the 310 to Yuma, um, because it was a stagecoach. Um, and uh, when you get back from Planet Zanussi, get in touch with me. And that was that. That was the end of my liaison right. with Morrissey. This is, this is kind of the roundup questions then. I mean, what have you learned about music management over the years? <laughs> nothing, absolutely nothing. Because you're, uh, you're, still, you're, still, you're still very much managing people today. You're managing Dolan, you're managing Hair Squid. Yeah, Squid even. Hair Squid. I manage Hair Squid. I, I co-manage a group called Hair Squid, who are brilliant. Three young uh, guys of African origin who grew up in Dublin. Um, one is 19, one is 20, one is 21. They rap and they sing, they write all their own material, they're brilliant musicians, and they're signed to Columbia Records. Um, I still manage people, yeah, I, uh, uh, what was the question? What have you learned about music management over the, over the 40 years you've been involved? I've in? learned that, uh, uh, forgive me, uh, I don't believe in God, but God strike me dead with a bolt of lightning. Artists are a pain in the arse. That's what I've learned. But yes, you and keep very rewarding at the same time. Thank you. Okay, thank Just you. Just saved myself there, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> but no, like you know, no, 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 no. That's it's it's yeah. it's not so much. It's not unfair. It is unfair, but there's an element of truth in it as well. It's a very, very difficult balance between loving somebody with all your heart, so that you'll do anything for them, and then they do something that causes you to go, oh, "Why am I doing this?" You know. So there's that. There's a terrible constant battle to find the balance between those two sets of feelings. They're not our souls at all. They're okay. just, they go through difficulties the same as the rest of us. Do you ever look back and regret 
No. Take on anyone. No. no. no, no, no. Do you ever look back and think you'd like to you'd like to remanage someone else again? No. Okay. No, I mean, there's no no no. One of my best friends in life was John Peel, and I was very not honoured, but I was very kind of rewarded with this friendship and one of the which is not a direct answer to your question but one of the things i remember him saying was why would i spend time playing old music because he was talking about all that i'd be in the studio with him and there'd be all these pieces of paper of people writing to him saying can you please can you play that tune you played you know can you play you know uh so and so so and so can you play jerry lee lewis or whatever and he would say to me, why would I play something old when there's... That just takes up three minutes that could be filled with something new. So that's the way I look at things. I, there's nothing... There are endless things if I sat down and analysed, but everything is analysis with hindsight. So hindsight brings a whole different thing that wasn't there when I was actually doing it. So how can you look back and say, oh, if I'd done it again, I'd do this, or I wish I'd done that, or I shouldn't have done that. What's the point? Last question. And thank you very much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. I'm Our sorry I've rambled so much. I really am. That's, it's a great, great, great ramble. Are Dublin going to win the Ireland this year? That's it. You know, there are, there's, I mean, your questions up to now have assumed a degree of intelligence. That's just the most <laughs> stupid question I've ever heard in my life. Fuck no, Kelly. Thank you very much. Thanks to Faulkner for joining us at Crinu, and thanks to Zoe, Penny, Rachel, and all the Crinu and Dublin Castle for their help with this. This podcast was produced by Laszlo Volk and the Bantercast series producers Tanya White. Check out thisisbanter.com for news we're up to at Banter, plus you can also listen back there to all the Banter podcasts to date. We'll be back next week with another Bantercast. Until then, goodbye and take care.